This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Coming up on today's show, Canada's women's soccer team put their foot down only to be threatened with legal action by Canada's soccer. Now they're back on the pitch. We'll talk about an encouraging new cancer treatment that could be a lifeline for people who've had difficulty with other treatments. And we'll also talk about allergists and the massive shortage we have in allergists in this country. Canada's women's soccer team was back on the pitch yesterday, training yesterday in Florida, but they didn't want to be there. They made that pretty clear that they were doing it under protest. It was the latest uh, chapter in what's turned into a pretty bitter dispute that's gone on for quite a while, but sort of reached a peak earlier in the weekend when uh, the Canadian women's team said, that's it, we're done. We're not training, and we're not taking part in the tournament. Uh, so let's find out exactly how we got to that point and where we might be going. We're going to chat with Derek Van Deest, who is a multimedia sports journalist for the Edmonton Sun and Journal and a national soccer columnist for Post Media. Derek, thanks for joining us. Always appreciate your time. Good morning, Shay. How are you doing this morning? I'm great. How are you doing? Good, thank you. So let's go to the lead up here. I mean, this has been a, a discussion that's gone on for some time. I think most of our listeners know that there's been, you know, always a discussion about equity and women being treated fairly by uh, Soccer Canada. What happened uh, leading up to the point where the women's team said, that's it, we're out? Well, I think what happened was, this is these are conversations that have been going on for a while, and I think um, this really falls on the leadership of Canada Soccer because it seems like they had a similar problem with the men's team last year in June, um, where they were supposed to be negotiating contracts and it looked like they were kind of dragging their feet. And then it, it got to a point where the men said, we're not going to play anymore. We're not going to play until we deal with this contract situation. And I believe it's a similar situation with the women's team. The women's team is preparing uh, for a, a tournament coming up. They, they play on Thursday against the United States in, in a tournament called the She Believes Cup. It's a four-team tournament. And this is kind of a, a lead-on to the, to the Women's World Cup this summer in Australia and New Zealand, where Canada have qualified, but not only have they qualified, they're, they're expected to be a contender to win the tournament. The, the, the women's team is among one of the best in the world. They're the defending Olympic champions. And I think just it's, it's gotten to a point where they're trying to negotiate a new contract. They want uh, kind of similar terms to what the men eventually uh, agreed to, and the men are all uh, on board with that. They say, yes, they should get the, the same financial um uh, compensation that we got, they should get the same financial compensation or in, in, in terms of that. And I think it just got to a point where um, Canada soccer was kind of dragging its feet. They didn't want to get the negotiations going. And the, the women are said, this is enough is enough. Like we have to get this thing going. We, we need this, this, this contract worked out. And unfortunately it, it, it come to a head again. And, and this I, to me, this calls, squarely on the executive of Canada Soccer. And, and the executive says, yeah, we will have a new deal. We'll, we'll deal with this. And pay equity will be sort of the, the, the bedrock of this new deal. But leading up to it, that certainly has not been the case, right, Derek? I mean, the women have a legitimate grievance here. I think they do. I think they have a legitimate grievance. They're not compensated as well as the men. And they should be, in a sense, uh, at least percentage-wise, they should 
they should get what they're worth. And I think this this women's team, I think, carried this program for yeah. a long, long time before before the men were even relevant. I think the men's program wasn't relevant for thirty some years. The women's team was 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 competing at World Cups. They were competing at Olympics. They won two Olympic bronze medals. So they were the ones carrying the program. And now they're saying, hey, wait a minute. I, I, we understand the men's team qualified for the World Cup, but now we want similar compensation. And I think they're absolutely right. I think the Canada soccer has to find a way to do that because they owe it to this program because this program carried Canada soccer for so long. And you look at a player like Christine St. Clair, or you look at players like Janine Becky, they're household names yes. now because of what they've done for this program. And I think um, I, I'm totally on board with, with what the, the, the Canadian women are, are looking for here. And, and I think it's just really a matter of Canada soccer stepping up and, and, and doing the right thing. Okay, so they stepped up and said, okay, that's it, we're out. We're not training, we're not taking part in this, as you said, pretty important tournament. Um, but that changed by Sunday. What happened? What did um, Canada soccer throw up and say, yeah, probably a good idea if you show up? Yeah, it, you know, Canada soccer, I guess they played that, that the litigation card uh, right away, and they said, no, if you guys don't play, then we're going we're gonna to sue you for, for not playing in this tournament. And this is a pretty... Um, this tournament is is a is a pretty high end tournament. They, you know, this is hosted by the United States, uh, and they usually invite some pretty high end teams there. So it, it's it's a it's a it's a big tournament in, in, as far as exposure goes for these players uh, and the women's game. And so to Just not to- participate in it, it would be a, a a big deal. So I think what happened was is Canada right away instead of negotiating, Canada Soccer said, "No, we're going to sue you guys if you don't play." And reluctantly, that kind of forced the players back out on the field. So, 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 where do we go from here? The contract expired in 2021. What's the timeline for getting a new contract put in place, Derek? Well, it should have been already done, and now you're looking at well, it should be done before the Women's World Cup, which starts in July. So, I think, and I think that was the, one of the issues with the with the men last year is that they didn't have that contract in place. And I think part of the problem is is that there's there's a lot of money going into Canada soccer right now with, in terms of sponsorship dollars, in terms of of prize money that that, that, that the you know, association got for qualifying for the Men's World Cup, that they're getting for qualifying for the Women's World Cup. But no one seems to know where this money is going. And and, and I think they, they just want um, some uh, transparency. They, they want to say, okay, where are your dollars going for Canada soccer? Canada soccer saying, well, we're spending money on this and this and this, but they're not showing any anything specific. And I think that's what the players want. And I think that's where they have to start is where is this money going? Show us where this money is going. Don't tell us you don't have the money. Just tell us, show us why you don't have the money. And I think that's where the impasse is right now is that for whatever reason, Canada soccer doesn't want to open the books and show their finances to the players. And as far as the women's team, they're saying we've been forced back to work for the next few weeks. We're going to take part in this tournament, and then after that, all bets are off. So um, it's not settled. It's not like, okay, you've, you've, you've threatened us with legal action, so we're back on board. It's like, okay, we'll do this, but then we're going to escalate again, right? So this isn't over from their point of view. No, not at all, because now there's, there's this tournament, and then they're, they're what they're called international windows, where the club teams uh, take a break, and then they allow the national teams to kind of prepare and, and play exhibition games leading up to the Women's World Cup. So this tournament is, is a two-week tournament. They'll play in this tournament. There's three games. And then, obviously, there's, there's going to be times where there's going to be international breaks where Canada can schedule more games. And now I think what the players are saying is, hey, we'll play in this tournament, but if we don't have an agreement and we're not satisfied by the time the next international break comes, by the time we schedule the next set of games leading up to the Women's World Cup, 
then we're not going to play that one yeah. as well. So this is, it looks like they've dug in and I think, you know, good on them for digging in. I think it, it's important and it, it just, it's a shame that it got to this point because these negotiations should have happened a long, long time ago. And, and for whatever reason, they were put off and put off and put off. And then, and they've come to this, this situation. It's really too bad because we should be talking about how good this team is and how good this team is expected to do at the Women's World Cup. And, and instead, we're talking about labor, labor negotiations. Exactly. So it's, it's unfortunate in that regard. Um, last one, and I'll let you go. A lot of support. The men's team, as you said, but also government, right? And, and you know, like you're pointing the finger at Canada soccer. So is the government saying maybe we need to take a closer look at management there. They're under some pressure. They're certainly um, under the microscope, right? For sure, because they do get government funding. So Canada soccer does get government funding, kind of like Hockey Canada did before they pulled it. But um, they get government funding, so now they basically say, here's the money, you guys deal with it. But now when there's, when there's issues like this, with, when, when you're having issues with both of your national team programs, both the men and the women, yeah, they're going to take a closer look, and now they're going to want to see, okay, where is this money being spent? Why don't you have money to pay the, the women as equally as you did the men? And uh, now once government gets involved, you know, all bets are off here. Um, they can always pull that funding like they did for Hockey Canada. So this, this could be a serious situation. And, and I think, like I said before, this to me falls squarely on the executive of Canada Soccer. They need to do the right thing. Yeah, absolutely. Derek, thanks so much for your call. I appreciate it. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. A story that I think is pretty interesting and uh, encouraging. We know that the fight against cancer continues on and on, and it's something that, um, you know, your life will be touched by cancer. Um, If not personally, somebody you know, you know, we've all, it's so prevalent. We've all been affected by cancer in some way, and um, it continues. We've made improvements, assuredly, no question, but we know the fight is far from over. We're going to speak now with um, someone who's working on a a new angle of attack in that fight and some encouraging results, I think. We're going to chat with Dr. Jennifer Cuisina, who is a PhD researcher at the Ottawa Hospital. Doctor, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate your time today. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on. Um, So what we're talking about here is um, basically a new form of, well, I guess I keep saying new, but it's not all that new. It's been around for a few years, but it's a T-cell therapy. So let's just define what we're talking about. What is a T-cell therapy? For sure. So what we're we're focusing on is a therapy called CAR T-cell therapy. 
Um, and what we do here is we take a patient's own T cells. So this is a type of cell, an immune cell that's found in your blood. And we're taking it out of the blood and we are engineering it in a lab to target specifically uh, certain aspects of a person's cancer, reintroducing it into the person, and we're seeing some pretty phenomenal results. When you say re-engineer, what, what does that mean? I mean, if you can dumb it way down for somebody like me, when you talk about yeah. taking it out and re-engineering, what does that mean? For sure. So, uh, as we all know, cancer isn't just one disease, but a multitude of diseases. Um, and different cancers have uh, different things that they show on their surface. Now, cancer is a very tricky beast because it has evolved to evade or avoid our immune system because our immune system recognizes cancer to be bad, but it has been tricked into basically neglecting it or ignoring it. So when we take these T cells out of a patient's body, we are rearming it with the appropriate information specific to that patient's cancer to say, now seek out and destroy anything that you see that has this specific component on it. Okay. All right. Um, and as you say, seeing some encouraging results, it's been around for, what, about five years, something like that, where it's been trialed. And, and, and like you say, it seems to be showing some positive results, right? Absolutely. So unfortunately in Canada, you know, we're just starting to access yeah. this therapy. And in fact, the trial that I've been a part of uh, was started in 2019. It was very much an acknowledgement to the fact that this therapy existed in the U.S. We were actually sending patients in Canada to the U.S. to receive the treatment, but was not available here in Canada. And unfortunately, it's still the case in certain provinces in Canada today. Mm -hmm. And so really, although it has been available uh, elsewhere, not so much for Canadians. Um, but as I mentioned, this trial um, has been open since 2019. Uh, we've actually recently published results in the first 30 patients. Uh, and we're seeing in, in patients who had, you know, months, weeks to live, uh, complete sustained uh, remission. So they're cancer-free. These are individuals that would otherwise have expected to perish from their disease are still alive and with us today. Unbelievable. That's the ultimate goal, of course. What, what kind of cancers in particular? Blood cancers, right? Yes, blood cancer. So CAR-T therapy right now has shown a tremendous amount of success in blood cancers. Um, the holy grail of this, this therapy will really be to figure out how to extend the results we're seeing in blood cancers to solid tumors. Solid tumors are a little bit more tricky, and unfortunately, this is the vast majority of cancers are, are solid tumors. They're not the, the blood disease. Um, and there are additional challenges associated with these solid tumors, but uh, my team, many teams that we collaborate across the country, because you, you can be sure that this is going to be a team effort to, to figure this out. Um, we're working on trying to find ways to see what we're seeing in these blood cancers be translatable to also the solid tumors as well. I know cancer treatment, you know, some of the more traditional ones, radiation, chemotherapy can be extremely hard on the patient. It sounds like this one might not be. Am I, do I have that right? It's, how, how long does this take and how hard is it on a patient? For sure. So there's a real big difference between this therapy. These are um, biologic or living therapies that, like we, we talked about earlier, we engineer to be very specific to the cancer. And so the side effects or what we call off-target effects are very minimal. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas when you have something like radiation even, which is more targeted, but still more systematic, affects more areas other than the targeted area you want to hit, 
you know, the number of side effects you have and then the quality of life that a patient experiences as a result is very, very different. So this is one of the most um, fantastic parts about these targeted or personalized therapies is the fact that we're able to more specifically target the cancer and leave the normal healthy cells alone, which means less side effects, which means the patient is able to re-engage in their lives much, much sooner. Specific to this therapy, there are side effects, um, but they are managed by medicines for the most part. And um, I wouldn't want to speak to, you know, how quickly people are back on their feet because I'm not a physician. But uh, relatively speaking, it, it's much, much sooner with fewer side effects, to be sure, than the systematic uh, or systemic um, chemotherapy yeah. and, and other now, as you said, uh, we used to be sending patients to the United States. Now we're trialing it in Canada, but not everywhere, right? Where are you seeing this trialed? And hopefully it expands, but where are we at right now in terms of access to this in Canada? Yeah, so for the trial that I'm speaking about, we have a clinical site uh, where I'm based out in Ottawa. Uh, also, we have in Vancouver and in British Columbia. Um, there is another trial, actually, that's treating patients in your very own province in Alberta. Um, and what we're hoping to do is for the next generation of these CAR-T therapies, so of course the trial that we're um, treating patients on is focusing on a specific thing that these blood cancers um, express, but there are a whole host of other things we can target. So we're looking to the next generation of these therapies to target other things so that, you know, for patients that don't respond on our trial, there's other options and that this would be also widely available across country. Um, right now, as I mentioned, we have those two sites in Ottawa and Vancouver, but we're looking to add an additional three sites over the next year um, across the country in locations like um, Manitoba, um, Saskatchewan, and um, and possibly on the East Coast as well. Excellent. That, that, that's encouraging. I'm, I'm wondering, since it's been used before in the United States, and I imagine in other parts of the world, I mean, is this something that uh, will be mainstream? Or, I mean, it's showing positive results, so that's great. But in terms of when it may be accessible as chemotherapy or radiation, is there a timeline like that? That's a great question. I wish I had a very clear answer for you, but unfortunately I don't. What, you, what you're asking for is, you know, when will this become standard of care? And in certain provinces it is. Um, there are other products that can be available, but again, we're, we're talking about the provinces where it's not currently accessible and, right. and where, you know, our, our trial really is the only opportunity that these patients have to access it. Um, our hope is that we continue to show how um, impactful this treatment can be, that we're able to justify it being earlier or being administered earlier on in a, in a patient's treatment journey. Um, one of the biggest issues, um, I, I don't know how much I want to open this can of worms, but is the cost of these therapies. Um, they are incredibly uh, costly because, as you can imagine, we're making a therapy specifically for an individual. Uh, and so part of what my group does uh, here in Ottawa is we are actively looking for ways to bring down the cost of this therapy so that this is not only something that's accessible, but sustainably accessible uh, for, for Canada and the way we administer our health care. Well, encouraging. I mean, that's the bottom line, doctor. And hopefully, like you say, it, as we continue to progress, it becomes um, standard of care, as you said. So uh, great, great work. And uh, I appreciate you joining us today. Thanks so much for your time. I guess it isn't surprising. We've spent a lot of time here on the air talking about the issues that Canadians face in navigating the healthcare system these days. And we know there are some real challenges right now, and it affects, well, every aspect of the system. Now, 
a specialized group of physicians talking about the issues they're facing. We know there are human resource shortages right across the healthcare system, you know, from, from, you know, highly specialized doctors right on down. It's everybody is dealing with shortages from coast to coast. So, um, this is about allergists and it's a pretty serious situation. So we're going to get into that conversation now. Joining us to give us the details, we have Dr. Miriam Hanna, who is a pediatric allergist and clinical immunologist and a professor at McMaster University. Uh, Dr. Hanna, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you being here. Thank you for having me on. Well, when we uh, to get started here, when, when we talk about allergists, um, we're talking about some very highly specialized physicians, correct? That's what, when we say allergist, there's a, that's, a, that's an official designation. Uh, yes, it is. So um, for all of us, we would have gone through either internal medicine or general pediatrics as a specialty and then completed another two to three years of subspecialty just in allergy after that. So these are people that have done six or seven years after their medical school training to get to be designated as allergists. How many of those do we have in Canada? Is there any way of knowing? Uh, there's approximately 200 to 250 registered allergists in Canada at any given point. Changes a little bit from year to year as more enter and some retire. Makes sense. Uh, and I would imagine, like many highly specialized physicians, we're talking about them being concentrated primarily in the major centres, right? Absolutely. We have um, like a, a big number of them that are in Ontario, Alberta, and BC. But then we have some provinces across the prairies where there's maybe one allergist or none even in some of our provinces in the Maritimes. Wow, none at all. Yeah, and like even in the territories, there's some areas that have none. There simply aren't enough allergists all over the country. So obviously, I guess the answer seems self-evident, but uh, for people seeking this kind of specialized medical attention, dealing with allergies, obviously it's resulting in long, long waits if you can get care at all, right? I mean, yes, it is resulting in long wait times. We're seeing an increased number of people that are reporting allergies, and you guys may have felt that in your social sure, circles yeah. where more and more people are talking about them. We're definitely seeing an increase in allergies being reported, and that's creating a higher demand for this subspecialty service that really there aren't enough allergists to begin with across Canada for. So in terms of weights, has that been documented, like where we are? I mean, we know about surgical wait times and all that sort of stuff. Do we know what it is to get in to see an allergist? It depends on the region where you're located and the type of issue or the type of medical concern that's there or allergy that's there. Um, with some things that definitely we can expedite and get them seen by the right person. But in some situations, having to wait 6 to 12 months or even more, depending on where you are, for appropriate testing, might be the reality that you're facing. Um, and I imagine if like, we're talking about major centers as being the ideal situation, and it's got issues. If you're not in a rural center, the hassle of trying to get to an allergist, I mean, to access the care is another major issue, of course. Absolutely. I mean, we've had to pivot as many subspecialties have during the pandemic and learned about, you know, what we can potentially be able to offer virtually or through telehealth. Um, but in most settings, we'd want to see this person in our office to do the appropriate right. testing and evaluations to have them, you know, with the right diagnosis and the right plan moving forward. And allergies, as we know, and like you said, we've all seen this increasing, you know, just in the community. And, you know, if you've got kids in school, you know full well that we're talking about what can be very serious. I mean, life-threatening conditions here, right? This is serious stuff. 
Life-threatening food allergies are definitely on the rise, not only in children. I mean, there are recent reports that even show adults developing new onset food allergies is going up. But certainly the stakes are higher with the younger ones, with infants that can't speak or as you're trying to feed them new foods and having to navigate that without knowing certainly as to whether they're going to be okay doing it or if they're going to be in trouble and you need to act on it. Um, and if you're a patient or if you're a, the yeah. family of a patient, I mean, just the stress of not knowing, this has to be probably their biggest concern. Yeah, absolutely. Not knowing, not knowing what yeah. the next reaction will look like, not knowing what all needs to be avoided and what's appropriate and what's not. If we're talking about specifically food allergies, food is so much part of our culture and our social yeah. and everyday interactions. So it it tends to extend and exist in every single circumstance that they enter to say, you know, is this safe? Is this reasonable? And am I equipped to handle the consequences if my child or I have a reaction today? Any idea why? I mean, we know that there's shortages in healthcare right across the board, and we're just yeah. we just don't have as many you know people as we need. Why? Why do you think there might be a shortage in allergists? Any work done on that? You know, it's a it's a subspecialty, right? So with all of our subspecialties, I don't think we are much worse or very different from other subspecialties. We are seeing an increase in the reports of allergies across the board, and our, our demand is increasing. Our supply is a, an issue. It takes years to train an appropriately trained allergist and get them out there. And our training programs will take time to adjust to increase the amount of enrollment so that we can train more allergists to help more people. You know, it, it's a trickle-down effect, I would say. Is there anything that can be done in the meantime? Like, obviously, we want to try and get people who are, you know, seeking this kind of care as quickly as we can. I mean, are there things that can be done? Or I, I mean, you can't Absolutely. manufacture new doctors, but in the meantime, what can what can patients do? Um, you know what? We, we rely heavily in subspecialty care on the backbone of our health care system. So our primary care doctors, your family doctors, and your pediatricians. So whenever we have somebody that is concerned about allergies, that's your first step is to talk to your doctor, to go in there and review what it is that happened, because they can arm you with a lot of really good information and resources to get you started. And in the interim between, you know, getting that firm diagnosis and where you stand after your first reaction. Talking to your doctor will help you understand kind of what medications you should have available on hand, what things are safe or potentially need to be avoided for a period of time. In Canada, we have probably one of the most robust resources available online. Our Food Allergy Canada is a wonderful nonprofit network that provides a lot of very accurate health information in regards to specifically food allergies. And this tends to be an issue that people really want to be well informed about while they're waiting to see an allergist as to what next what needs to be avoided, and what should safely be able to be given. Yeah, so if you can't access an allergist, at least get started with your GP, if, if you have one. Exactly. Of those. <laughs> if you have one, which is, yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, we all know, we all know, but I appreciate you coming here and shedding some light, and uh, it, it's just, it, it's a tough time in healthcare right now, so hopefully things start to get better. We know there's lots of talk, the, the premiers are meeting today, doctors, so hopefully we see some things turn around pretty quickly here, but I do appreciate you joining us today. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.